Welcome to Executives at the Edge, a podcast brought to you by MEF. I'm your host, Pascal Venezes. Join me as we explore thought-provoking perspectives from the leaders and changemakers who are propelling enterprise digital transformation forward. In today's episode, we are really privileged to have Dave Larson from Spirant Communication. He's the CTO there. And I welcome you, Dave, to Executives at the Edge. It's glad, I'm glad to be here, Pascal. Thank so, you, Dave, Pat. for all our listeners, tell us about yourself. I mean, I'm sure they want to learn about everything you, you do. You're, such, you're a luminary in the field, and we'd love to hear your background and then also a little bit about the company, but go ahead. So, luminary is kind of like a, a, you know, it's a, equivalent to old. <laughs> I've, been, I've been around for a long time, and I've been fortunate to be uh, through a lot of different transitions in the technology space. Uh, starting with the advent of switched Ethernet early in my career. Um, at Spiron, I am, as you mentioned, the CTO, and I am responsible for the technical direction of our company. And we make test, measurement, and assurance solutions for anyone that needs to uh, evaluate their network. Primarily, our customers are folks that are participants here at MEF with us uh, in, the tel- in the telco community. Um, we also sell a lot of equipment and solutions to network equipment uh, providers, network equipment manufacturers. Um, for me, uh, I've been doing this for a long, long time between the, the changes in the network from the various uh, speed changes in the ethernet uh, to cloud networking, and then interspersed, I've spent a lot of, a lot of my career in the data security realm, uh, starting with the advent of virtual private networks and then moving on into places like IPS, Nextshift Firewall, Distributed Denial of Service. So I'm a, I'm a technologist, I manage businesses. Um, I'm not an engineer, I don't pretend to be one. I was early in my career, uh, but I love the dynamism that exists in the backdrop of the place where we work because there's so, much, so many fun topics to explore. Well, you seem to have a lot of debt, so depth. I have a lot your, of debt too, yeah. as it turns out. I meant depth. <laughs> But you have a lot of depth in your in your capabilities, obviously. Uh, as all of us, we were all engineers at once. We all had to graduate so, um, into something bigger and run, running businesses and things like that. So, but, but listen, Dave, I want to understand. So, what's going on in this dynamic of telecommunication providers having to be kind of cloud-like, or you, yeah. you call it telco clouds, or? I mean, you're just in the midst of this, right? So can you give us a little bit of an understanding of what this is all about? No, I'd be happy to. This is something that we spend a lot of time uh, both talking to the operators themselves, talking to the community at large, trying to educate ourselves internally about as well. Uh, Cloud is a generic term and it's a catch-all, but it's a very specific thing to the telecom community. And it started with the advent of network function virtualization, NFV. Uh, And the the carriers... um, very carefully define what they wanted to build in order to get some of the scale benefits that exist in the public cloud. And what they have managed to achieve is pretty substantial and very interesting, but it would be hard to describe it as compatible with what most lay people think of as cloud. So when you talk to the men on the street and you say cloud, the first thing they're going to answer is Amazon, right? That's exactly a- AWS. Right. Uh, and when you look at the hyperscaler cloud architectures and the way that they've virtualized their infrastructure, the way they've built their hardware, it's very different than what the NFV uh, architecture had defined. So the telecom providers find themselves in a situation where they want to gain the benefit of access to the hyperscale infrastructure, but they have to figure out a way uh, to map and transform 
their virtual infrastructure in the form of uh, virtual network functions to make them more cloud friendly. Uh, when you look at NFV, NFV is predicated on a couple of technical underpinning architectural elements, OpenStack, mm -hmm. OpenVSwitch, mm -hmm. and DPDK, which is the data plane mm -hmm. development kit. And that is the way that the virtual components of an NFV environment inter intersect with each other. When you look at the public cloud, when you look at what uh, Microsoft and, and Amazon and Google have done, they're more, they have their own virtualization framework uh -huh. in the way they present instances. And virtually all of the cloud community is standardizing on containers and Kubernetes as the structure by which you deploy and manage and orchestrate an environment. And those are very different things. It's, it's actually, it's, couldn't say, that's spot on because infrastructure is code is where they've gone to. And now it's all GitOps, you know, and all Kubernetes and containers and microservices. And yet we came from the world that NFV was the answer. And tell us, you, you, you were, you, can you help us understand the, the differences? Because we were all about Etsy, man, Etsy NFV, the Mano, and all the things you described, you know, OpenStack and the Vim and all that. So, so can you help us now? What happened? Well, I mean, the, the, the thesis and why we got to where we got to with NFE has to do with the fact that the telecom operators have always operated on five nines or better availability and reachability as sacrosanct. It's something that you have to do. When you look at the hyperscale guys, they don't care about that anymore. They've made, they've transformed to a model where everything is scale out, everything is immutable. And if one particular function dies, nobody notices or cares. Yeah. If something happens in the telecom stack, it takes the whole thing down, right? Now, NFE has gotten and included many of the scaled attributes that exist in the public cloud in order to get to greater degrees of freedom, greater degrees of scale that couldn't be easily accessed with bespoke hardware, right? But they now see that there is an economic env environment and a requirement to expand regionally and not just with one cloud provider. So yes, AWS is the hegemon. They're all over the world. But frankly, if you're a multinational operator, you don't want to be uh, locked in on one particular cloud provider. And in fact, even regionally in a country like the United States, you might have better availability with Google in one region, Amazon in another region, Azure in another region, and you want to be able to move between that. Well, the problem is staggering to homologate an NFV infrastructure to each of those distinct yeah. and discrete cloud architectures. So for us at Spirant, the thing that we want to do in terms of engaging the community is find out how can we test, how can we validate these critical infrastructure components that have been virtualized in software, how will they operate in these various environments? Will, will there be performance uh, considerations? Will there be availability considerations? What happens when an instance fails? What happens in the orchestration environment when a portion of the Kubernetes framework goes down, if a pod goes down, or if an individual element goes down. What's, how do things recalibrate? How do we recover? How does that really impact your availability and what your expectations are? Because I can tell you, as good as the NFE backdrop is for running private estate, bare metal cloud, it's not that at AWS, Google, or Microsoft. They have scale and they have cost optimization but they don't have the attention to detail in terms of five nines availability that is necessary for a telecommunication operator. So does your offering service software try to predict that? 
It doesn't try to predict or it. Or test it. Yes, it tries to test it. And it's not just that it tests it. You will know that we, as a, we as a, as a company, we have various uh, solution offerings in the market that test different elements in the network from uh, products that I manage in the Spire te Test Center that do high-speed Ethernet conformance testing uh, to Landslide that will do a full 5G core evaluation for you to understand whether it's feature conformant to what is expected by the operator. What we're adding to that is the ability to combine those capabilities, to combine security effectiveness testing with infrastructure testing. And what I mean by that is the infrastructure for, a, for an NFV core is running on some amount of servers running OpenStack OBS and VPDK. And we test that today. We would apply our landslide program to just find out what the 5G core is doing, how is it operating, where does it fail. When you move into a containerized environment that's Kubernetes-based and it's public cloud deployed, how do you do that, right? You're at arm's length from this now. So you need some kind of virtual capability to go interface to Kubernetes, interface to the infrastructure, and begin to treat it with chaos techniques. So drop a pod, add some latency, take an instance out. What happens? How long does it take for that overall architecture to recover? Right. Didn't they, didn't they, don't they treat that as what they call that uh, cattle and uh, there was a terminology, cattle and like animals, or cattle, and, cattle and dogs or cattle and sheep. Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. No, it's, it's, it's pets and cattle. Pet, pets, pets and cattle. Yeah. yeah, yeah, yeah. You, you know, cattle is, there's lots of it. Yeah, it's let, fine. Yeah, pets you treat very, very, very carefully. Exactly, that's well, it. Well, the, the telecom operators have lots and lots of pets. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> but they want to put it in the cattle pen. So yeah. how, do you, how, do you, how do you handle that, right? So for us, you know, coming into the MEF, talking with the certification organizations, working in places like SD-WAN and SASE, trying to imagine where the services are evolving to, how can we be uh, a beneficial element to all of the intersection of that economy? So our customers are everyone that plays here. We, we have customers who are network equipment manufacturers on the Ethernet data center side, NEPS on the, you know, the provisioning of uh, bespoke equipment and virtual technologies for the core operating environments of the telco, and then the telco themselves. Increasingly, enterprises buy our equipment as well. And so when you think about that end-to-end -end ecosystem that we talk about onboarding people in a more automated way, in a point-and-click, portal-driven, you, you have to be able to test this stuff, not only pre-production, not only unit testing when you're developing, but you need a life cycle that allows you to go end-to-end -end throughout the production. And so for us, we also spend a fair amount of time doing uh, evaluation and assurance of live operating environments. But, it, but let, let's just back up for a second, because I'm kind of a little confused. I, mean, I get for Etsy's NFV's you know, environment, what they defined, that where this is really critically important, because it, it lacked a lot of, of these areas. Number one question, do you still see those deployments out there? Or are they kind of gone to cloud native? Which we didn't come oh, no, in a second. Certainly, they're still out there, right? They, they, they were designed to be operational for decades, right? There's some amount of it. The, the thing about, there's even, there's even lots of old uh, hardware that's still, you know, that didn't, didn't conform to NFV that's still in place in various elements of the environment. So you mean you're telling, I, I've always thought it was really hard to run an NFV environment because when in the NFVI, it, when something went down, you find. But the, the VMs were, you know, they, they weren't microservices based or monolithic. And, you know, you had, you know, you had the VIM that had to 
then coordinate, you know, and stitch together exactly all the VMs together. And it was, it was really kind of like, it was very kind of, it, was, it wasn't, the integration was not, it was tightly integrated. It wasn't loosely coupled integrated. Right, there was, a, there was a goal for it to be loosely coupled, but so it that did, it would allow lots of interoperability. Yeah, being and, a manager yes. and all that. But I think, I always thought that that environment never really took off. And when we looked at the stats, people were doing trials, but I thought it never really took off. And now you talk about the, the hyperscalers. The cloud-native environment has absolutely exploded, and everybody wants to copy it. And, we, and we want, I want to talk about it in a second. I thought... So I understand testing that environment in the old world NFV. Yeah. And I, I get where your value is. So that that is, so you're saying so there's deployments out still, still doing that, right? So. Well, no, I'm, yes, the, the, the whole community is moving towards cloud native. Okay. But there's a huge amount of technical oh, landscape like, so that has to move that way. Okay, got it. So then we go to cloud native. Now cloud native is all about, you know, I create a YAML file, I download that into the, was it the, the, the API gateway, the master node and the Kubernetes, right? I can't remember my no, Kubernetes. Um, and then it takes care of it, right? And, and then you just basically have the pod and it just basically takes care of, of all that configuration for you. It so, takes care of the configuration. That is 100% correct. Here's the thing. All of the technical architectural elements that have been transformed into the cloud native environment were um, monolithically hierarchical, uh, meaning they were designed, as, as you said earlier, as closed, bespoke, tightly integrated systems. And so when you take out a, the componentry that runs a, a various element that, a, a, of some kind of network function that you need to run in the environment, you now need to test it in an entirely different domain uh, of failure character. But hang on, the whole idea of containerizing was to be able to take your software, yep. put decompose into so small components, yep. right? Microservices, add a service mesh, yep. which is a sidecar. Yes. And they would be able to live wherever they want to live through the sidecar, yes. the service mesh. And when one component had to change, it just changed that and wouldn't affect everybody else, right? But what you're saying is the network world is not microservice, not created a microservices environment for the, all of that. It has started to. But not, it's not fully there yet. It's not fully there yet. And there's a lot of, you know, we, we talk about technical debt. There's a lot of technical debt that comes forward in an industry that's as old as the one that we're in, right? Okay. And things get brought forward. They get, it's, remember this, it's easy to test from a unit test perspective, from a development test perspective, any architecture that you want to in a closed environment, including a containerized architecture. You set up some servers, you have set up an orchestration environment, you take some of the containers that are interacting to represent a networking application and they're in multiple locations, you demonstrate that they work viably together. The thing that people have missed, and not, not everyone has missed this, they've, they've used human capital in order to achieve this by doing lots and lots of manual oh. interference and testing. Wow. But the ability to automate infrastructure failure domain yeah. alongside your feature testing simultaneously is something that has been uh, not well productized, I guess. And we're, you know, we're just beginning to get there with some of our large uh, telco operator customers. So, so this is your primary offering now? Where are you going? No, it's not primary. It's just an area that we're working. Oh, just area. Okay. Our, our, we have a very vast set of offerings that, that uh, are applicable to this landscape of customers and audience, if you will. Got it. Uh, from high-speed Ethernet. So one of the things I'm 
personally interested in is the adoption of 400 gig okay. Ethernet. It's been with us now. It's I wouldn't describe it as mature, but it is generally available. Yep. Yes. And yet we don't see a huge amount of uptake on it. And I'm not entirely surprised by that. It could be that people are waiting for 800 gig, yeah. right? Because it's right on its heels. And so for us, we want to understand what's going to happen there. So that's an area we do uh, um, standard validation, pre-standard validation of every high-speed Ethernet turn on the crank. We, we're, we're there ahead of it. We do security. We, do, um, we, have, a, we have a product that will allow us to test uh, virtually any environment, TLS, IPsec, virtually any class of security appliance, virtual or hardware, for its conformance to its policy distinctives. What is it able to stop? What can we offer to it to see what it does? Oh, that's interesting. Can we test performance under various forms of encryption? Can we test um, cycle rates through a variety of different cryptographic elements, keys uh, uh, primarily? And can we show uh, that for a particular application, a particular approach for security is better for it or its performance dynamics than something else? So we do a lot of that. As I mentioned earlier, we do tons of interaction uh, with the telco community on conformance with their core elements. How do they test 5G core? They test their back hall and their front hall. We do all of that. In addition, as a company, just for interest's sake, we do a tremendous amount of validation of GNS, GNSS, GPS, low earth orbit satellite constellation testing of their networks. Wow. So if it's a you network- guys are, You guys are doing a lot of testing. Yeah, we do Wi-Fi. I mean, literally, if it's network, we test it. Yeah. Wow, that's very impressive. So let's, so let's come back up for a second to cybersecurity. It's sure. a very hot area. Yes. And you're an expert in this area. You come well, from this area. <laughs> I have certification. I don't know if that makes me an expert. Well, I mean, you certainly know the space inside out. We had a great panel the other day, and and you spoke, you know, some really great words of wisdom about what the space has gone through. So, what what are we suffering from, and what do we need to fix? You talked about zero trust. How zero trust do you think is basically the the answer to all our problems? Maybe not. Maybe maybe, maybe a little black and white. But can you ex- explain? how you see the world expanding, how we, you know, we stop these cyber threats and, um, yeah. and these threat actors. Yeah, no, I, I think zero trust is a great vision for where we should go. Whether it'll ever, we'll ever get there and whether it'll solve all the problems, I don't know. I, look, I've learned for a long time in the cybersecurity industry that the money behind or the economy that drives bad actors is bigger than the economy that drives the it, remediation isn't that techniques. Funny? I was hearing so, statistics that the third largest economy behind the US and China is cybercrime. We're like, wow. Yeah. And so, you know, I'm not naive to think that we can ever solve, solve the problem, but we have an obligation to do better, right? And I think that there are technology elements that exist today that will allow us to do better. And we still, Think of the defense in depth architecture at the edge of an enterprise, yeah. which is a stack of different kinds of appliances zones, that yeah. all do different things. And we all know that whenever you take something that complex as a layer of endpoint firewall, edge firewall, edge IPS, edge secure web gateway, um, of various kinds of DDoS defense, and then all the analytics and introspection that you do to try to figure out what's going on. There are going to be gaps and seams that can be exploited. There are going to be vulnerabilities that are inherent in those solutions that the bad guys can determine and get around. So zero trust is about trying to find a way past this stack of capabilities and instead push the problem to a higher level. I think um, 
the integrated trust network that we were talking about here yeah. at MEF at the at the MEF. Maybe we already have 15 nodes already, yes. Yeah. yeah. But to me, that's really compelling. Why is it compelling? Because the net internet itself has no governing feature. Exactly. Right? It's open. It's a wide open. And to the degree that it has a governing feature, it has the DNS system, which is a namespace, which has absolutely no security on it, yeah, exactly. we know. Yeah. <laughs> and it is, it is probably the way in which most network-borne uh, attacks are somewhere how riding shotgun on, it, the, on, exactly the, on right. the need to do resolution. Yeah, that, that, that's why we have Google's, you know, uh, DNS server and Cloudflare's 1.1.1, right? Yeah, it's, it's brilliant. So to me, I look at the integrated trust network as a really interesting and compelling first step to get to a consensus-driven, uh, inherent uh, identity sovereignty mechanism, right? You you have to this this whole self-sovereign digital twin stuff that we've been talking about. You have to have a way of having control over your identity, representing it reliably, and in a way that if it ever gets spoofed, if it ever gets compromised, the environment itself detects it immediately and locks you out and requires you to re. Re-register, so, so why is the centralized identity provider not good enough for that? Because they they have a lot to IDC. They have versus decentralized IDs. And because they can be compromised. Okay, so the key point is anything centralized can be compromised. This yeah, and it's better than nothing. Look, I, there's going to be a lot of centralized identity um, entities that will participate in something like uh, uh, the the you know the the identity trust network, right? Or what are we? I'm saying it wrong. Is no, it's, right? it's, yeah. it's it, yeah, it's it, ITN. Yeah, integrated trust integrated network. integrated trust network. Um, the when you look at when you look at just the vast landscape of people trying to solve this problem from <laughs> thousands of different perspectives, to me, simpler is better. Consensus is better. Look, there's trillions of dollars in the cyber uh, in the in the cyber coin cyber currency. Uh, um, uh, crypto cryptocurrency landscape. There's there's tons of monetary incentive to break it, and yet it's not being broken. Yeah. And there's so, something about that that lends some credence and credibility to trying to to follow that approach. That, that's for walking absolutely down the true. That's absolutely spot on. In fact, may, that's why maybe such a lot of noise on Web 3.0. Yes. Based on blockchain, and I think you know you're spot on. I know we're running out of time. And Dave, I could go on and on with this discussion. Maybe we should just stop after this podcast and keep talking. But, you know, uh, I got to say, it's just, I love talking to you because this is amazing topics and you're so, so knowledgeable and we're so grateful to have you on this podcast. So I want to thank you, Dave, for this and uh, we'll welcome you back some other time and continue this great discussion. Pascal, it's always my pleasure. Grateful to be here. Thank you.